content note. This episode discusses the experience of a person in North America being treated for depression and acute suicidality with ketamine. In the UK, where I record this podcast, there's an ongoing debate about the suitability of ketamine as a treatment for depression based on emerging evidence. At the time of recording, NICE, the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, does not reference ketamine in its guidelines for the treatment of depression. Talk to me about the spiral. It felt like the more I was finding, the more pushback I was getting. I gain acceptance through achievement. That was what I ultimately found. And if they're not accepting my achievement, they're not accepting me. And that was when I started landing in this place of like, they don't want me. And then that got down that slippery slope of, does life have meaning and purpose? And then it kept going into this element of like, does my life have meaning? And should I even be alive? And when you think about this time, when's the moment that you look back to and you think, that was my rock bottom? I mean, the rock bottom has to be when I tried to commit suicide. The unlock moment was about two months into doing ketamine treatment. I saw myself. And I don't mean myself as in the person I am right in this moment. But I saw a wise part of me and I realized that this was me or this is me. And that was the switch that let me quit jobs, transition careers, and step into the person that's on the mic right now. I knew who I was. And I knew the wisdom that I had from all the suffering I went through. And I knew I could help people avoid the pain I went through. My name's Dr. Gary Crotez, and I'm a coach, podcaster, and award-winning author of The Idea Mindset, a book about how to figure out what you want and how to get it. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. When I'm in conversation with my coaching clients, these are the breakthroughs that are so profound that they remember vividly where they were, who they were with, what they were thinking when their unlock moment happened. In this podcast, I'll be meeting and learning about people who have accomplished great things or brought about significant change in their life. And you'll be meeting them with me. We'll be finding out what inspired them, how they got through the hard times and what they learned along the way that they can share with you. Thank you for joining me on this podcast to hear all about another Unlock Moment. Hello, dear listener, and welcome to another episode of the Unlock Moment podcast. Sometimes I have conversations with people on this platform who can speak to subjects that others might be thinking about, but have never expressed openly. I met today's guest recently, and it's my huge privilege to bring his story to the podcast. Rob Kalvarovsky is an impactful leader 
whose quiet realizations give his community loud transformations. Through his work and his podcast, The Leadership Launchpad Project, Rob shares wise insights about toxic leadership, mental health, and finding purpose in life. He gives people an intimate and caring space regardless of the size of the room, while bringing humor and research into his coaching. Before transitioning into leadership coaching and speaking, Rob spent over 10 years at the opposite end of the sensitivity spectrum, honing his skills as an engineer within mining, oil pipelines, and consulting in heavy industry. Rob has a foundation of high performance as he graduated from MIT with a bachelor's in mechanical engineering with a minor in management. He was also a three-time academic All-American in NCAA water polo and played on the under-18 Canadian national water polo team. But the fast track to success is rarely a straight road, and Rob suffered significant mental health challenges. His journey of recovery led him to leadership coaching, podcasting, the TEDx stage, and a complete life transformation. I'm deeply grateful to Rob for coming on today to talk about his experiences, and of course, I'm curious to learn about the unlocked moments of remarkable clarity that helped him to find the path ahead. Rob Kalvarovsky, it's my very great pleasure to welcome you to the Unlock Moment. Thank you so much, Gary. And uh, what you said about the lack of sensitivity in heavy industry is completely true. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> I look forward to hearing more of how you've, how you've brought those two sides of your brain together. So today, you're a successful leadership coach, podcaster, speaker. But where do we need to start in your story to understand the person you are today? It's where you mentioned, right? So when I was about 10 years old, I started playing water polo and then quickly got hooked and got real serious about it real quick. And fast forward, we won a national title, um, was on the junior national team. And then that led me to going into MIT, where similar to your path, Gary, I picked engineering. One was because my dad said, hey, you need to have a degree that gets you a job when you graduate. So we've heard that on the show before. <laughs> and then the other side of it was because it's hard. I got into MIT and the, the part about MIT is you can basically do a year of it's calculus, biology, chemistry, and you don't have to choose a major until the end of your freshman year. And so I went through it and then I was like, well, mechanical engineering is the number one program in the world at this point. So I'm doing it. <laughs> Fast forward, I get into the workplace and basically they teach you at MIT that you're smart and that you will become this leader and you're going to be doing all these cool things. And I got a job in coal mining and I worked there for about a year and I saved them tens of millions of dollars. And I was like, this is my path to success and to happiness. The promotions coming in the door and, and all these things. And I actually got the inverse. And this is where now I talk a lot about toxic leadership, but I didn't really understand this at the time. All I knew from everything I had done was perform and people will like you and people will, you know, give you recognition and all these things because you do great things, not because of who you are. And is that something that you'd learned, you know, coming through your teenage years at university that that had been your experience, that you've been somebody who had performed and had got that recognition? Yeah. And the work we do now about mindset 
is it actually forms between when we were born and seven years old. And so it's much before when I was a teenager, but I learned it through school, through uh, my parents, right? It was this element of like, get an A in the classroom and we'll say you did a great job. And so I even have memories of like grade two and three where we were doing, oh, it was like a math minute or something. And it was all about winning, right? And that's the part that's really hard is we learn all these beliefs about ourselves when we're very small and we don't really have context. And now we're adults with big responsibilities and we're still running on a playbook that we learned when we were a kid. So if we'd known you as a teenager, for example, how would we have seen you then? What, what kind of teenager were you? How would other people describe you? Yeah, I was, I was a go-getter, but I was extremely happy doing it. And so I was training probably around 20, 25 hours per week when I was 14, 15, all the way to 18. But I loved it. I loved going to the pool. In school, it was kind of a second priority, really. But I mean, yeah, I was happy doing it. I would show up. That was where I was getting a lot of my belonging and acceptance was was from practice. And so my life had a very singular focus. And so on the day you graduated from MIT, did you feel prepared for the workplace, even though you might not have known quite what that was going to be yet? But did you feel ready to step out into the workplace? Absolutely. I, I think, I mean, obviously I was 21, so I have no perspective. Uh, but I'd worked summer jobs and I was able to navigate those. And so I, I didn't think it was going to be too different. And yeah, I just, I was ready to tackle a next bigger challenge because another thing that a lot of your folks mentioned on the show, right, is, is this element of feeling like you didn't do enough. Hmm. And I had felt that when I won a national title was, is this it? And then when I walked across that stage, I also felt it was like, what's next? How do I go mm. bigger? <laughs> and there's that societal pressure that we all get, isn't there, of it's not enough. There's more that I need to do. If you look in competitions, we were professional ballroom dancers, as my regular listeners will know. It was something that always fascinated me that whichever round you were in, beating the people that you beat generally wasn't hard. And being beaten by the people that beat you was generally no surprise. So there's actually, it's a really narrow window that you're competing in. But everybody is just as frustrated about their result, whether they're third in the final or not out the first round. And from the outside in, if you're not a competitor, sometimes you don't understand that because you go, well, obviously being a third in the final is amazing. Getting the bronze medal at the World Championship is amazing. Well, to the person that got the bronze medal, it kind of depends on what they think of the person that came fourth and what they think of the person, people that came first and second. And I think that that does also play through to work life as well, that, you know, you had a stellar sporting career coming through as a teenager into university. You went to a top, top university onto a top, top course, and you're still coming out going, is that enough? What's next? What's more? And that's an interesting setup then for what happened when you go into this big environment where there's, you know, few safety nets in that sort of context. Yeah, the, the one shift I would just mention, Gary, is 
it's not about how we feel about the other competitors. It's ultimately how we feel about ourselves. And so I coach an Olympic gold medalist and I asked her, how did it feel? Well, I actually, I actually said, how long did it last? And she was saying exactly what I said was like, I was standing on the podium getting the medal and I was like, what do I do now? Hmm. Because after you win a gold medal and you've spent your entire life shooting for the gold medal, like, is it, do I have to go to the moon now? <laughs> like what's next? Right. It's, it's an incredibly hard place to be in. And so often where a lot of, I mean, my self work, but also the work I do with my clients is, is through mindset, which is like, you know, we often think that our results, and this is not our faults, right? But we are often taught that our results are meaning who we are. And we need to create that separation and define who we are as people and the qualities and attributes and gifts that we bring to the world versus just the fact that we're good at some skill and that we produce results. So when you saved your company tens of millions of dollars, how did that make you feel about yourself? I thought that this was just what I do. I deliver results and this was who I was. And I was like, I produced more money than any other engineer and therefore I should get a bigger raise and I should get a promotion or I should at least get some recognition for the fact that I did this work. This was where the kind of the toxicity came into place was the manager I had at the time I see it now, I didn't see it before, but what I see now was a person who would do anything to look good in front of their boss because he was trying to get the promotion as well. And for him, this meant that having the status quo of all the things that he had in place before me was really important to make those look good. And so small shifts were allowed but big radical changes that were significant, that's too much for the system. And it landed as passive aggressiveness towards me. And ultimately, I was left questioning my decisions at work, questioning whether my life had meaning. And then ultimately was this element of like, I felt like they didn't want me as a person. It's really interesting. And I think that I've seen it a lot in the workplace. It's something, there's dynamics in the workplace um, that are sometimes almost unavoidable. Sometimes you have genuinely toxic leaders. So just they're difficult people. They don't like other people to succeed. They don't like to bring people on. They don't like to communicate pleasantly and humanely with their teams, all of those kinds of things. That's one thing. But sometimes you've got really, really nice leaders. But imagine they've been in their role for five years and you rock up and you go, just had this idea about the way we do things and we could do it differently. And that's going to save us a load of money and it's going to make the business much more profitable and we're all going to become rich out of it. You're still needing your boss to say to their boss, that thing I've been doing for the last five years is wrong. And the new person that showed up spotted it 
And so you're to have that conversation, somebody's got to say, I didn't spot it because a different person has spotted it. And that's really hard. And often, you know, when I was working in the work environment, in the corporate environment, I had to think really carefully about how could we surface those conversations, the right conversations to have, but just in having them, you know that you're making it almost impossible for somebody in that organization who's got to say, I didn't spot it before. What did you see of that in, in this environment? I mean, you're 100% right. And I didn't have that awareness at the time. Like, you don't learn this stuff in college. Like, I learned differential calculus and engineering and all these things, right? And I just was like, well, here's a result. This is what you want. Ultimately, you want to make more money. This is the path. But you're right, is a lot of what, like, I coach folks with now, and it's very much leadership is very mindset-driven. So it takes a very healed person to look at themselves and say, you know what, I didn't see this, but this is why I hired this person is because they're an expert in something I'm not. And therefore, this is good because we're getting better as an organization. But if the leaders haven't done that internal work, then it's, well, I can't allow this to happen because it means something about me, like I'm not good enough, or I'm not smart enough, I'm not whatever, right? All the chatter that we hear in our minds. And for some folks, it's imposter syndrome. For some folks, this is like a catastrophic thing about their self-worth, right? And so it's ultimately the leaders out there listening to the show is do your own mindset work Obviously, you can ask Gary and I or, or a therapist or folks out, like, like get support doing it. I'm not just saying read a book and go for it, right? But it, that's the true importance of doing the inner work is because not only will it change your behavior at work, it's going to also change your behavior at home, and you're going to get better results than you can even imagine. Talk to me about the spiral. So where it started is you've seen a thing, you've had an idea, you've put it forward, it's right, it's a good idea, it makes a difference. But the way that was received, the way it was handled, started to cause you to start to think, is it me, something about my capability, something about my worth? Talk to me about how that spiral progressed and where it went to. Yeah, it started, right, was this element of, it felt like the more I was finding, the more pushback I was getting. And now I look back and I go, that makes sense. <laughs> and then I started thinking as someone who basically through athletics and, and college, you're taught to just push through the problem or find solutions and work around it. I started trying to go through to different folks in the organization to push the idea around my boss. That didn't work either. And so I ended up in this space going, I know this is right, but I don't know, I'm basically powerless to affect change, or at least this is what I thought. And that was when I started going, it must be something about me that I'm not able to do this. 
And the other side of it was this element of like, I had the, my identity wrapped up in results. And what is a result if it doesn't get pushed through or if folks don't recognize it, right? Like if you climb a mountain, but nobody's watching, that's catastrophic to the person who like, I gain acceptance through achievement. That was what I ultimately found. And if they're not accepting my achievement, they're not accepting me. And that was when I started landing in this place of like, they don't want me. Because I looked at it and I was like, well, these are the skills I had. They know I had those skills. When I interviewed, I had those skills. And they hired me, but they don't actually want my skills and they don't want me. And then that got down that slippery slope of, does life have meaning and purpose? And then it kept going into this element of like, does my life have meaning? And should I even be alive? I think it's important to hear that domino effect because lots of people will resonate with the idea of a time when they were at work where something was difficult, something didn't go well, had a difficult conversation with somebody. And at a certain level, that's normal life. That's, that's working in a team. That's working you know, with a manager or with a member of your team. It's normal. And to take that home and go, actually, you know, I felt pretty rotten through the weekend because I had that difficult conversation during the week, is also normal. But normally, people get through that and they go, okay, I figured it out, came back to work the next week, sit down, had a coffee with the person, and we figured it out and we're moving forward. But sometimes it spirals into a place that is not normal. And that's what you're describing here. What do you think made it start to spiral more in that kind of domino effect way, as opposed to be something that you can go... It was a really difficult week. We had some really difficult conversations, but we figured it out. What caused the beginning of that real spiral? Yeah, and that was, for me, I mean, you've talked before on the show about tiny T trauma or little T trauma. That was a huge contributor to that. Obviously, that didn't have anything to do with the job. That was very much from childhood. But also, I think it was the environment in general, right? I was living in a small town I had few folks as a support system. Often I would go from Thursday or Friday afternoon till Monday without having a really meaningful conversation with anyone else. And so then your mind is left to eat itself alive. And the other side of it is when we have hard conversations at work or you know we say something we shouldn't say to somebody, Often, yeah, like totally, we feel shame or we feel like we shouldn't have done it or all these things, but we're still not questioning who we are as a person. And that was the other side is, is if I was a result or if I was the person who has to deliver results because that's who I am, who am I if I don't do that? And of, of course, everyone listening to this, you may have pieces of this. Basically, everybody I work with as a leadership coach, 
they have pieces of this. And most of it's not as intense as mine was. But ultimately, our brains and our mindsets are trying to keep us, our self-concept together and to keep us from feeling bad feelings. And so we've learned to do behaviors that help us sort of prevent that pain from happening. And mine was to work hard and perform. Lots of folks that I work with now, it's the same. But other folks, it can be behaviors like people pleasing or even stuff like gambling or drinking or or drug addiction. Like those are extreme, but they also are behaviors that are designed to help us feel better. And in this time where you were in this spiral, in this time when you were going through a weekend and having no meaningful conversations, would the people you were working with have noticed a change in you or not? I would say probably. I kept a lot of it outside of work. I mean, work was, it was a little negative, like the toxic environment was throughout the whole team. And so that was the other part that was really hard, right? Is like you're looking for positivity where there's not. And so this is the other element, right? Is like toxic workplaces increase depression by 300%. And then there's another study that came out earlier this year, which is less academic, but it said that your manager has the same impact on your mental health as your spouse and more than your doctor or therapist, right? And it's like, this was the environment I was in. And I was in that toxic workplace at work. And then at home, I had nothing that was positively impacting my mental health. And so I was trying to cope with exercising, with drinking, with eating. Like I did some fairly crazy things to try to manage my feelings, but ultimately none of that works. And when you think about this time, when's the moment that you look back to and you think, that was my rock bottom? I mean, the rock bottom has to be when I tried to commit suicide. It was, wasn't a plan. It wasn't like I was sent out to do it. It just sort of happened in this spiral of absolute darkness. Like that morning, I went to church to hope to get something that would give me a reason to continue. And then that day, like I was trying to get feelings, anything, and I didn't get it. And then I ended up just, yeah, drinking a lot. And that sort of led to this thing. And the part that's not, the part that really matters is not necessarily the attempt or anything, but it's, especially in the context of this show, right? Is you think that like, we're taught by movies that like, when we hit rock bottom, like we'll see the light and we'll be ever changed, right? And I woke up the next morning and I was still alive. I tore up the suicide note and then I went to work and I knew my job was killing me and I knew I couldn't continue. And I knew that, like, I should have moved to the beach. I should have, like, done all these things, right? Like, overhaul my life. But I didn't know how to. And I was so trapped in 
my mind that I couldn't, I didn't have the self-authority to quit my job and move. And so I just kept working. I didn't have the self-authority to quit my job and move. What's the self-authority? Yeah, this is the part that a lot of folks, regardless of how old you are, will resonate with. Is part of your healing journey and doing the inner work is to make decisions in support of yourself as a person, right? I didn't have that ability at 20 before I did the deeper work, right? All of the decisions I was making, I thought was for me, but it was for the image of who I was supposed to be or should be. Like, hence, took engineering, went to MIT. Like, these are things I did because, you know, my parents were like, yeah, you got to go into STEM. You got to make money. You got to do this. You got to do that. And ultimately, they led to me trying to take my life. And the self-authority is just looking at like, what's the best thing I could do for myself in this moment? And how would I choose to do this, right? And that's, it can take a lot of time and, and healing to get there, but it starts small, right? It can start small, like I'm choosing to go and do a workout because it makes me feel better. Or I choose to take a five minute break in between my calls because I can, you know, take a couple of deep breaths and go to the washroom, right? Or it can be big, like some of the stuff I've done recently, like Gary was talking about, where I moved to Costa Rica and I did a TED talk. Well, actually, and I left engineering as a career, right? But self-authority or self-authorization is basically just, you don't need some higher power or somebody with authority to tell you what to do. You can choose for yourself. It's so very powerful what you're describing there. So in that moment, in that time of being in that rock bottom place, what was the first thing that you did that started to move you to a more positive space? Nothing. So I was getting treatment at the time. I was getting, I was with a psychiatrist. I was with a therapist. The medication wasn't working, which is very common. Obviously, you know, Gary, because you're a doctor, but the medication was actually impacting me in a negative way. And the therapy was, it was ineffective. And I actually was having multiple invalidating experiences in therapy. And I quit all of that. And basically, I dissociated for, it was around six, seven years until I hired my own coach. For me, it wasn't about going into leadership or doing anything. I was like, I was working in another job, living in a different city, and I was trying to start an independent consulting business because I didn't want to work in corporate anymore. That opened up emotional intelligence and awareness which was catastrophic to my system, which led me to go find a therapist, which I am seeing in a few hours, actually. But she's amazing, and she does very trauma-informed therapy like EMDR, internal family systems, 
And that was when the work truly started for me. So finding the right people at the right time, doing the right work, made the difference. But it takes time. And I think that, that thing you say about, you know, that period of dissociation, and, and, and it would be helpful for people that don't necessarily understand what that is. Describe what, what you mean by, I dissociated for years. What do you mean? Yeah. So I had resigned myself to feeling that I would feel mediocre forever. And I had decided that the the only way that I could survive till I was 65 was to switch jobs and move cities every two years. And the reason was to keep some form of novelty in my life. I wasn't emotionally available. I wasn't happy. I wouldn't say I was depressed, but I wasn't. Basically, the emotions were shut off. And I floated through life. Like I wasn't making proactive choices for me. Like all that self-authorization was, it was there, but it wasn't really there. Like I wasn't making great choices. I was just like, yeah, I'll try to find another job in the same industry. Maybe I'll get promoted. Maybe I'll make a little more money, right? But it wasn't this element of like, is this truly what I want to do for 40 years? That was really the, the part and it, it was sort of, I, f- I felt like I was drifting through life. The motors weren't running on the boat. It was just like the sea will take me wherever I go. And I think that what you describe there is, is very common. Very early in the podcast, I had the privilege of interviewing Dr. Mark Goulston, who's one of the world's leading experts on suicide and is a major psychiatrist in the US. And he was talking about the lack of connection, the lack of hope that people in that place feel. And it's quite difficult, I think, to describe that really to people that have never experienced it, because it's a very, very profound sensation, very strange sensation for people who feel a sense of connection and hope. And it is quite difficult to imagine not having that at all. But I think you articulate really beautifully what that feels like in that moment. And I think that is really helpful to people to really put into context, you know, where you are in this space. Now, everybody's different. Everybody's experience of depression, everybody's experience of suicidal feelings, if they've had them, are different. Everybody's journey of recovery is different. But for you, there was a real key moment where suddenly you found everything starting to click to help you find that connection and help you really step up and out of that place that you're in. Talk to me a little bit about that part of the journey for you. Yeah, and this is what you mentioned, Gary, about hopelessness or despair was very much what I experienced through my trying to find healing. (laughs) So before I found the right people, I had done 20 to 25 different medications. I had done multiple different therapists, multiple different types of therapy. I've been diagnosed with everything from major depression to OCD to ADHD to bipolar. And the big switch is finding those right folks. Part of that was my therapist. And then I worked with her for, I did about two to three sessions a week for six to nine months. 
she turned to me after about six months and said, Rob, I don't understand why you don't feel better. Like you come in, we do deep work, but yet your day to day, you still feel awful. Like, I think you need to like look for medication or something. And I had already looked and I was, I had given up on medication. And I talked to a friend of mine who's a therapist and he was like, you know what, Rob, you should try ketamine because this is new and hot. It was in 2021. And so I, I felt like I was out of options. I felt like this was my last shot at trying to feel better. Otherwise I was, you know, I was thinking about the electric convulsive therapy and I was like, I'm not sold on that one. <laughs> but I found this clinic in Edmonton. I went and saw the doctor and the biggest thing he said to me that built trust immediately was, Rob, we have a genetic test that we use. And in two weeks, it'll give you a report that'll tell you which medications will work and which ones won't. And I pulled out my credit card and I was like, can we do it now? <laughs> that was the reason why I, I feel like in that moment, because the previous conversation I had with my regular GP was, well, if I knew that this medication would work, I would have a Nobel Prize. And now my psychiatrist is saying, well, we can do a genetic test and it'll be back in two weeks and we'll tell you what'll work. And that was a light switch for me. And so we started doing, like I started doing ketamine treatment with him. And I started also using medications that he was prescribing based on real science. <laughs> The unlock moment was about two months into doing ketamine treatment. And after being about a month on the medication I'm on today was I saw myself during a ketamine session. And I don't mean myself as in the person I am right in this moment, but I saw a wise part of me and I realized that this was me, or this is me. And that was the switch that let me quit jobs, transition careers, and step into the person that's on the mic right now. In that moment, I saw myself, and I said, this is me. What, what did you know then? That you didn't know before. I knew who I was. And I knew the wisdom that I had from all the suffering I went through. And I knew I could help people avoid the pain I went through. It's really powerful. And for a person who had built a, a life and career doing something very, very different to suddenly, and what age were you at this point? 32, I think. Yeah, so early 30s, suddenly to go, I see myself in a different light and I see my purpose and I see my life ahead in a different light. There must have been a really profound moment. Often when I talk to people, these unlock moments I find fascinating because they are quite different from just a moment of kind of moving things forward a bit. These are moments that you'll 
always remember where you were, what you were thinking in that moment. And they do talk to this deep underlying sense of purpose. And I'm fascinated because you've told this story about being an elite high performer, but in a thing that wasn't your purpose. It wasn't your purpose to be an engineer in coal mines. It wasn't your purpose to be any of those things. Your purpose is to do this. Did you know that instantaneously? Did that become clear over time? It became obvious in that moment, but I had done a lot of work to get to that moment, right? So I had spent probably, I did about 100 coaching sessions and I'd done, I don't know, 200 therapy sessions. And at that point, I was probably 20 ketamine sessions in. And so there was a lot of work that led to that moment. But that was when it really crystallized for me. For folks out there, so ketamine is a psychedelic. It's also in the U.S. and Canada, at least, recognizes a treatment for depression and acute suicidality. So I was able to get it through my psychiatrist legally. But it's also incredibly powerful, not if you're just depressed, but if you're trying to take a next step as a leader, maybe that's healing some stuff in your past that you may not even be aware of, or even in that moment, like what happened to me was seeing who you could possibly become or who you are. And so we are now working with Sonny Strasberg, who's world-renowned for doing ketamine-assisted therapy, and she, she's also certified in EMDR and IFS. But she, we're doing retreats with her because it can be an incredibly powerful tool if applied in the right context. Of course, if you take it and go to a dance party, that's not the right context. But if you're you know, getting the treatment in a therapeutic setting where you can also integrate the things you're learning and uncovering, it can be absolutely transformative and in a very short amount of time. It's really interesting. And thank you for, for clarifying quite the role it was playing in, in that journey for you. So bring me up to today. You've been through that period of your life. You're still in treatment. You're still in recovery and, and growth. But where's that brought you to? Where's that realization of this is me, this is purpose, this is what I want to do with my life? Where's that brought you to today? Yeah, and it started, I mean, of course, as as everything does, it started small, right? (laughs) So it started with, you know, we were doing some coaching. I work for Elite High Performance, so we were doing some group coaching for corporate groups and like touching on emotional intelligence and like, you know, the standard leadership, foundational leadership stuff. And then recently where it's led to was now we're incorporating internal family systems into what we do to unlock leaders in a new way, or in my opinion, more effective way. And then also where we're starting to dabble into retreats with psychedelics. I mean, of course, ketamine is the one we're using right now, but who knows what will happen in the future in terms of legality and all these other things. But it's also for for my personal life was transformative, right? And I, I mentioned I moved to Costa Rica. 
I did a TEDx talk about how to deal with a bad boss. But I also got married and I bought a dog. And these things, for some folks, it seems trivial, right? Like it's like, oh, everyone gets married or everyone, you know, buys a dog. But actually buying a dog, I needed someone to, my therapist said to me in a session, hey, you should consider buying a dog. And that gave me the authorization that I didn't have that led to us getting the dog who has been Winston and he's incredibly healing for me. But then that was part of the journey of, you know, learning to make choices for me. And that was what led to my wife and I moving to Costa Rica in April, me going out and getting a TED talk and doing that. These are the parts where now I see the legacy I want to leave and the impact I want to have. And I'm making choices in alignment with that. As a person who has two dogs, I can't applaud you enough for realizing that Winston is an important part of your life. What kind of dog is Winston? He's a labradoodle and he's amazing. Um, he teaches me so much about leadership, but it's having a dog was so healing for my system because it's unconditional love and unconditional acceptance. And it's unlike, it's unlike having a person with you, right? It's just, they can't lie to you. And so it's just such an amazing thing. I, it's actually part of my daily practice now, like in terms of what I do is I, I deliberately spend time just petting him and, and like he'll lick my head and we'll have this like bonding moment for like 15, 20 minutes. It's literally part of my day to keep me on track. <laughs> I love it. Everyone should get a dog. For the people that are listening to your story today, what's one thing you'd really like them to take away from the conversation? Yeah. And this one, it's to do the deep work and learn out who you truly are. And this, this doesn't need to be, you know, doing psychedelics. It doesn't also need to be, you know, you have to be depressed or suicidal before you do this, right? Like it can be literally like going on Google and Googling, you know, a list of values and then picking, you know, the five or 10 that most resonate with you. And ultimately, I like the Brene Brown pivot where she says, boil it down to two because then you can actually truly make decisions from it. And then also just something like identify the unique skills and attributes that you have, right? And, and often you'll need a third-party feedback to get there. But these are some light stroke things that you could literally do in the next half an hour that will help you learn more about who you truly are. Fantastic. And how can people find out more about you and the work that you do? Absolutely. Yeah. For folks out there, wherever you're listening to the Unlock Moment, just Google Leadership Launchpad Project and you can hit subscribe. That's the podcast that I host Gary is going to be on. We're in, in non-podcast world. We're interviewing him next week. But whenever this comes out and whenever ours come out, you'll find it. And then obviously for me, you can find me EliteHighPerformance.com or, or feel free to shoot me an email, Rob at EliteHighPerformance.com. I'm actually, yeah, I want to help folks. So I'm giving away five free sessions with me. So 
If you want to do an hour session with me, just send me an email. Rob Elite High Performance will do an hour session because I just, at this point, yeah, I'm trying to help folks and I hope I hope you listened and heard something that you found useful. So hit me up. Fantastic. That's an amazing opportunity and thanks so much for offering it. The Unlock Moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. For leadership coach and speaker Rob Kalvarovsky, it was a moment of profound self-awareness, this is me, that helped him to find purpose, regain connection and shape the life he lives today. Rob, thank you so much for sharing your story with such openness and vulnerability and for joining me today on The Unlock Moment. Thanks for having me, Gary. It was a pleasure. This has been The Unlock Moment, a podcast with me, Dr. Gary Crotez. Thank you for listening in. You can find out more about how to figure out what you want and how to get it in my book, The Idea Mindset. Find me on Instagram at Dr. Gary Crotez and subscribe to this podcast to get notified about future episodes. Most listeners to this podcast on Apple and Spotify haven't yet hit the follow button. If there's one thing you can do right now to help me out, then please click the follow button. The more followers I have, the better guests I can attract for you to learn from. Thanks again for listening and join me again soon here on The Unlock Moment.